Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of It's Easy Sun, your life lessons on your journey to your purpose. Uh, one of the things I was sharing with my guests uh, just off air is what people are looking for in individuals that are on this show. And as you, many of you know, I've interviewed many people thus far, up to close to 70 episodes, but I always have the most fun uh, interviewing, I should say, college presidents, uh, because they're doing something that is, I call it the Lord's work. It's ministry, especially in our HBCU context. So with me today, I have a gentleman whose career is not only just going up the ladder, if you will, in higher education, but he's an author. He's also someone who constantly gives back. He is a historian by, I'll say by trade or profession or development, but when you look at his body of work in higher education and what he's doing for young people, even to this day, it is super impressive. And I'm so humbled that he would join us on the podcast today. Ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, I would like to introduce and bring to the podcast today, Dr. Van Newkirk, the president of the historic Fisk University. Dr. Newkirk, how are you, sir? Good morning. I am fine. Just so glad to be here this morning. Thank, and thank you so much for joining us. We are so grateful and humble that you'll do this. So we could just jump right in. How I have done these interviews is basically no preset questions, just to ask an open-ended question. And based on your responses, we'll have derivative questions. And before you know it, an hour will be gone. So let's just jump right in. So who is, who is Van Newkirk and his early years, his growing up, his family, what undergirds him? It's is his inspiration, his core, all the things that make up Van Newkirk today. Who, who is Dr. Van Newkirk? Well, he is a rural North Carolina son. Okay, grew up in the eastern part of North Carolina. And, you know, I was raised by my grandparents. And I'll, I'll share this story with you because it's really important to me. And it's one of the formation stories. But my grandparents were an odd couple. Uh, my grandmother had gone to Barbara Scotia or Scotia Junior College and had gotten a two-year degree. And at that time, in order to teach in North Carolina in the 1920s, you only needed an eighth grade education. Mm. So with a ju junior college degree, she caught a train down the east and started teaching at a small school and quickly became a principal. And she met a truck driver who had a third grade education. And they married. And uh, they had one child. And I was the, the, one of two grandkids. But what was so interesting about this couple is that my grandfather, who had this third grade education, he valued education tremendously because he couldn't go further. And uh, he had 11 uh, siblings that he had to help raise. He was the third oldest. And so to make this story a lot shorter, one of the things that he pushed in his house was that education was key. That was the key to breaking all cycles. And uh, one of the things that uh, he always wanted you to do was to learn and memorize all of these various stories that he would tell. And so I had to memorize these stories as we sat on a tree as he came home. He was a truck driver. And uh, he had a photographic memory. He memorized all of these roads and uh, places that he'd gone. He could give you these vivid descriptions of these things. And that helped me to kind of shape and form a, an opinion of the world at an early age. But it also to help me to see exactly as an African-American, a young African-American man, where you need to go. And what I mean by that, he always set directional focus for people. And that directional focus was often in, in the inside of his truck. He's in the truck, he's driving places, and he could tell you, if you want to go from A to B, you do this and that. And I began to listen because he was a person who believed in the Socratic method, learn and do. And if you fail, then you fail. But he told you what the answer would be before you got there. And so learning from him was one of those key pieces that helped me to get to, to form where I wanted to be as a young person. And it helped me to actually move forward. And in my family, having this odd couple, one who had some education and one who didn't have a lot of education and actually build this whole uh, barometer of where I wanted to go. I think it was helpful to have that knowledge and have poverty not so far away from the family, see exactly how we we're gonna move forward. So, you know, it's interesting. You said your, grand, your grandfather was one of 11 one of, well, he'll be 12, one of 12. Mm -hmm. And you don't see families that big anymore in our modern day society. So was, 
what, what, your family siblings would you have siblings as well or is it was it just that you were a, a, an only child and just sitting at the feet of your grandparents what, what, what was well the no, no. it was it was two of us but Ooh, we were okay. 17 years apart oh wow wow yeah wow. and so you know i was the oldest and so we would sit out and we would listen to these stories and one of the inspirations for my book on lynching came from my grandfather. He, he was born in 1905. He actually lived through a lot of these traumatic events. I told a story about when he was delivering lumber to build a building at the University of Alabama, having to drive by a lynching, to be an African-American wow. man in a truck. Well, as a kid, I didn't believe this stuff. You know, you didn't believe this. It couldn't be real. And as I became an adult, I started looking into some of these stories and lo and behold, what he told me was real. And that actually got a thirst to actually do more research into this whole piece and led to this book on lynching in North Carolina. But having a person who could give you these oral histories, mm-hmm. who could pass down these stories about family and family wealth, generational wealth, generational issues was important to actually build the person that I am today. And I think that's what I try to do with my kids. I've got uh, three kids mm-hmm. and p- passing those stories that he shared with me down to my kids and to give them the same kind of inspiration. I think that's what makes a person great. That what, that's what makes a person to have that fire and burn, burning to move forward. So let me. So your grandfather is photographic memory, driving his truck and all these stories that he shared. Did that have some influence on your, I wanna say career path as a historian, trained historian? Is, is that early underpinning of those conversations you think led you to, to your career. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but you know, how you came up through grade school and all of that. But at the outset, could that be a, a kind of a, a structure, if you will, for how your career has been shaped over the years? I think so, because you have to think about it. Uh, he grew up as a fighter and he was one of the first African-American long distance truck drivers, which was quite an accomplishment in those days. That was a good job and not many, many African-Americans had it. And he fought his way up to get this truck. He fought his way up to drive across America. And he knew all of the back roads. He knew how to get to every place in the 13 states that are now the South. So he could go all over that place and he didn't need maps. But one of the things that he told me about is that anything that you want to get, it's not going to be hard, not going to be easy, but you've got to work hard for it. And so, you know, working hard, even if you want to be a good uh, street sweeper, you've got to work hard at it if you're going to do it right. And so what he had done to actually train himself to drive a truck, they wouldn't give training. He had gone to West Virginia, hitchhiked to West Virginia to work in a coal mine. He started driving uh, lorries that actually trained, took coal out of the uh, mines. And that's how he learned to drive a truck. And wow. came back south and started driving delivery trucks. And he drove those trucks until the 1960, late 1960s. Uh, and so, you know, this is an important aspect of my family and an aspect of me, you know, having to travel away from home to get what you need mm-hmm. and to bring that back to your family and then to use what you've learned to actually improve the conditions for you, your family. And I think that's what he did. So, so what, what was your early school, school life like? I mean, you, you have this a uh, grandfather with a third grade education, a grandmother that had limited education as well. Well, your grandfather is pushing the agenda, which we all try to push with our children, and that is education. So what was your, your grounding in education? What was, what was grade school like, high school, middle school? What was that like? Well, it was very, you know, it was interesting because, you know, Scotia, Barbara Scotia now, uh, was a very small school. And, and believe it or not, my grandmother was a third generation to go there. Mm. Uh, the school opened as an elementary school. And her mother had gone to elementary school there. And then her, well, her grandmother, excuse me, had gone to elementary school. Her mother had gone to elementary school. So they didn't get college educations, but they had been on the college campus. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so coming into uh, uh, my own in my hometown, my grandfather, one of the things that he always wanted you to do is to get to school. So going to school was a, something was a no brainer. You know, you went to school, you did well in school. And what do you mean by doing well? You know, there were many subjects I had difficulties in. But in my family, this is the thing that my grandfather and anyone always believed in. If you put 100% effort in and you came out with a D, then he's happy with that. But if you put in 20% effort 
and you came out with a D, well, then it's a whole nother issue. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, the effort was what they looked at. And I think that was important for me, putting in the effort. And I've always tried to to do that into my students, my my kids, Mm -hmm. my own kids. You know, if if you put your all into it and you're all got you a C, then be proud of that C. But if you put your all into it, for the most part, you're going to get exactly what you put in out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think has been my grounding uh, memento. And I think that's what I, I, I remember about school. I, I remember some, there's one story that's really important. I had a band director and this was uh, when I started school. I remember when they integrated schools. So that's kind of giving you my age a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was in the third grade when schools integrated. We had a band director who was an ardent segregationist. I'll just put it that way. And uh, he was so much of, uh, I want to say, into his old ways that all of the black kids, even though we lived in a predominantly black community Mm -hmm. in which uh, I'd say 60% of the residents were black, all the black kids always quit the band because they couldn't stay in the band. Well, my grandfather was determined that I was going to learn to be in a band. So, you know, I stayed in this band. It was all kind of racial innuendos. But one of the things he did say he went to the band room. So he told the band director this. He says, you know, uh, my grandson's going to stay in the band. You're going to talk to him in the right kind of language because he's going to learn. And so I had to learn to have to deal with that kind of pressure and stress. But that helped me to actually deal with so much that happens in America and to be the right kind of African-American, black man in America, because growing up during that time, it was kind of it was difficult. But having a person behind mm-hmm. me who lived through it, who actually, uh, who was willing to actually go to bat and help you be successful, it helped me to actually learn to play several different instruments and to be successful and to have this whole thing that I call temperance and patience, mm-hmm. and using that patience to get what you need to get and move forward. So even when you were in the band at such a young age, and that's a very fascinating story because I would have, you look, you look like a fairly young man. So I would have never <laughs> thought that um, that would be that, that way. But so your early school, did that follow you all the way through middle school and on into high school? Was it that, that, that tension was always there? It was. And, you know, being able and, and what was interesting about this particular band director, we were in a small community. So he was a part of my life from elementary school all the way up through high school. Wow. OK. And so having to deal with that, you know, you had to learn how to deal and how to actually be successful in spite of people trying to hold you back. But having a person at home who's going to give you the confidence that you needed to actually address those issues in the days. And so that to me was very important. And that that was a formative tool because, you know, I've used the lessons that I've learned there to actually overcome so much. You know, I, I work at a small institution right now that has had, I'll, I'll give you this story because it's, it was amazing to me. My assistant told me this. There have been seven, seven presidents and they've tried for 20 years to get new buildings. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm the first one to get the, the, uh, loans assigned for the new buildings. Mm. And that's because of being, you know, persevering, uh, dealing with different personalities and learning those whole tricks as a kid. Mm. And, and that's important, you know, because so often we get impatient, we throw in the towel and then we go on to something else. Yeah. And, and you know, and so quite often what you have to learn is that God is giving you a particular purpose. And if this is your purpose, You've got to fight for whatever he has put you there to do. Yeah. Fight for it. And if you fight for it and fight in the right kind of fight, God will back you. And you will see the success that you want to see. And it may, you may not get the kudos that you want. Yeah. But you will see the change and the change that the Lord has put you there to make. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've had to look at. And that's been my grounding memento. Well, you know what's interesting about what you just said, because I thought that the band, the band would be like an elementary school band and it drops off. But you said elementary, middle and high. You've been, that is some serious patience. So if I was to ask you, just if you do a juxtaposition between 
what your three children and how you tr you try to raise your three children, how your grandfather influenced you. Yes, you're going to have some lessons that you keep with you to raise your children. But if you look at society as a whole today, um, do you get the sense that parents and others back their children in a similar manner or create from them that atmosphere that they have to walk through some challenges? Because when you look at some of our young folks today, as brilliant as they are academically and technologically advanced, sometimes when you talk to them about surviving hardships, the conversation goes south really quickly. Well, you know, I think what happens now is that we live in a instantaneous culture in which people are looking, looking for instant results. And you only get that when you're putting in what instant milk or whatever. You don't get that in real life. Right. You know, because in real life, things don't happen that way. And I think, uh, you know, the best example I can give you, I have a daughter who is a professor uh, at a university. And I remember when she was working on her doctorate, she was very, very frustrated. And as I was talking to her, you know, I, I'm trying to give her this whole motivation of, you know, if it's worth having, you got to work hard. And, and so there were so many times that she was throwing the towel in, we were going back at it. And, and what I realized was that as she grew up, she was used to having this push button, uh, what I call a push button life. You know, if you wanted to order food, you could just get on the phone and you could order. Uh, if you wanted to go somewhere, it was quite, quite easy to get there. But when I was a kid, growing up, uh, you know, I was an adult before I ever got on the airplane. Okay. Oh, wow. Wow. So getting to places was quite hard. You had to drive. So, you know, if you wanted to go anywhere, you drove. There were certain places you didn't go because you was African, you were African-American. Uh, another thing about it, if you wanted to order some, something online or something, uh, some clothes, you had to get the Sears catalog. So it didn't happen right away. Yeah. You know, yeah. you got the Sears catalog and Maybe four weeks later, whatever you ordered would come. So I think young people now, they just have been brought up in a society which is an impatient society. And that has actually shaped our young people and, and, and perseverance is not something that's been taught. And that's because of where we live now. Yeah, but, but you're an educator par excellence in my humble opinion. And just listening to you talk right now tells me why you are an excellent educator, but you've been in, your career is 25, 30 years strong in higher education and then some. But if you think about your preparation, coming out of high school and going into to your post-secondary, what was that like? And you, you, you took a path along history. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that and what that was like and how that has shaped what you do today? Well, you know, here's an interesting aspect. Um, coming out of a rural area, I want no quicker to get get to get to, uh, away from that area as fast as possible. Okay, and I took a decision to go to North Carolina A and T, uh, and I got to that institution. The one thing I can tell you about being an Aggie, you know, it's an important aspect of the university to know who you are and what the institution stood for. And I can say going there and coming from a small town, you know, I enjoyed every minute of going to this institution and learning what it was about. But another thing that I was able to learn while I was there, and, and this is something I think that helped me become a better historian, was that how this institution came about and how this institution came out of Shaw University, another HBCU, and it became a landmark over in Greensboro. And then as I'm walking around the campus, what I learned earlier, learned later, was that there was another HBCU that was next door to it called Emanuel Lutheran Institution, Emanuel Lutheran College, which A&T had uh, bought in the 1960s. And just across the street was Bennett College. And so learning about all of this, it, it kind of whet my appetite to learn more. Mm -hmm. And then as I began to kind of look into my grandmother's institution and my family's institution, Barbara Scotia, then we found out all of these amazing stories about the folks who'd gone there. Uh, and I started doing just some basic writing, you know, in college. I started off in college, not as a historian, but as a landscape architect. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It was my whole journey to go back 
to become a forester and actually design these beautiful landscapes in the yards. That's what I wanted to do. And getting into college, meeting this one professor who actually changed my whole life direction because he realized that I didn't have a passion in going out designing yards. I had a passion in learning more about Emmanuel Lutheran College. Wow. And so, you know, not telling my mom anything about this, I changed my major. <laughs> <laughs> and she found out, I guess, two years later. And it was a real concern in my family about uh, how would I make a living as a historian? Right. Are you going to teach? And I says, no, I'm not going to teach in high school. Well, if you're not going to teach, what are you going to do with a history degree? Right. And, and so are you going to be a lawyer? No, I'm not going to be a lawyer. And so that's when I had to do some real soul searching. And that soul searching was finding a directional focus. So believe it or not, when I came out of school, I didn't go into any of the things that a historian would go into. I went into banking. Wow. And getting into banking, you know, it, it, it was a odd transition, but it was a good transition because as a historian, you know, you learn to memorize so many things and to remember things. Mm -hmm. So when I was in the bank, you know, we were doing transactions and all types of acquisitions. I worked in the corporate acquisitions por uh, portion of the bank. Learning, you know, those tricks of the trade were important. And I got a chance to kind of see how things were put together and, and memor memorize those things. Then I got into compliance in a bank and uh, putting all that together with the history degree was important. So I think, you know, your path and the road that you take what I read yesterday, and this is something that's really important. The roads that you take are actually uh, what I want to say described by others. And so it's important that you have good contacts. And I think those good contacts that I made connections that helped me in those early years to form who I am now and move forward. This is a fascinating story, Dr. Newkirk. I would have never thought banking and landscape architecture because I know a little bit about your background, but I've always thought it was always rooted in higher education. See, ignorance is bliss. So <laughs> this is actually pretty good because, you know, young people oftentimes are searching for what they think is best. I tell them all the time, wherever your core and your passion intersect, that's where you're going to find your most joy. But all of my guests that I've interviewed would probably, with the exception of Lee Haney, the Mr. Olympia, he said he had a plan A and no plan B. So I said, you didn't have a plan B. He said, no, plan A was my focus the whole way. But your story here actually is going to be very uplifting for folks who are still searching. But so you go through the banking, you go through that career. So how did you get back into higher education? Because when I met you, I met you at Elizabeth City and you were there as the provost. By then, my then president, Dr. Dorothy Kalzayansi, had told me about you. And um, she had also, and later on, I read your book. Uh, about historically black colleges and university, uh, you know what I think it was called a new life for historically black colleges. And even though I was a CFO, I'll just let you know publicly that book really got me focused on how I can play a role in helping them turn around. So thank you for that. But how did you get back into higher education to be so focused on the work that you do today? What was that journey like? Well, you know when I was in banking and I learned a lot in banking, I learned one thing that I didn't like banking. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I decided that at that time I'd actually go back to what my passion, I, I had maintained a friendship with the uh, professor I had at North Carolina A&T who got me into history. And so I decided we'd get a master's degree in the field. Then I went to Winthrop, which is just across the line from Charlotte. And it's really amazing how the world works and how things work for you in life. But I, my wife and I had gotten married. We bought a house, small house, our first house. And I was in my backyard one day. This is the story that she probably will tell you the same thing. And I met this young lady who came uh, to my next door neighbor's house. And there was all this hoopla and commotion about this young person. And uh, so I go to the fence for them to introduce them, this person to me. By and large, this was Dr. Yancey. And this was oh. her college roommate. Wow. <laughs> okay. And this is where we met in, in my backyard. And this was many, many years ago. And uh, I used to always, you know, have cookouts and fry fish. And so we met at that time. 
And from that uh, meeting, we became friends and we're really good friends now. But to make this story a lot shorter, uh, getting that master's gave me an appetite to do something else. And it was a small school just down the street from Charlotte, which was Barbara Scotia. Mm-hmm. And it had been my family school, and I had a lot of family living there. They were having hard times. This was in, in the uh, late 80s. They were having some problems. And so at that time, I made a decision that I'd go over and try to help. So I started helping them off the cuff a little bit, just mm-hmm. helping them a little bit. And finally, they said, would you come over and take a job helping us to get through our accreditation process? I don't know what I was thinking, but I said yes. Mm. And I got through and, and didn't know anything about higher education, higher, edu- higher ed uh, accreditation. But uh, I had been into compliance in the bank and I figured it'd be easy to translate it. And got there, translated it, got them through their accreditation process and started teaching history. Mm. Uh, and so that got me back into the fold. Took a big pay cut to do this. And I can, uh, I can only imagine. Yeah. And I, I loved it. Loved it. And, and the, the rest is history, if you want to put it that way. Now, I went on and got my doctorate and, you know, moved around a number of small institutions, uh, learning what it was about. In fact, there was a small institution that had lost its accreditation. And this institution sued the uh, accrediting body. The only institution ever was successful doing that. And I became the person that the accrediting body sent down because I'd made a name by that point, and I got them back on the books as an accredited HBCU, so I was proud of that, and I was able to kind of move around and do some other things that I wanted to do, and that got me back into my focus on lynching and mob violence. Yeah, well, you know, when I when I joined, when I first heard about all the HBCUs, I, I, I'm a Howard grad, so I, I went to Howard, but it's not until I got to the United Negro College Fund and working with Bill Gray, and we used to have the fall meetings, and we had to go to the different campuses in the fall and then when Dr. Yancey hired me at Johnson C. Smith, she used to tell me about Barbara Scotia. And I used to go up there, just drive around and see, saw the campus. And but by then, I think they had gotten into some trouble at that point. But the history of the campus is, is truly amazing. But when you, you, you're really being modest about the work that you've done in the accreditation and helping institutions, but you've helped quite a bit of institutions get through the accreditation process. Um, I've been a SACS reviewer since I, ca- I got to the South. I know what that's like. But over the years, are you seeing where the institutions and their leadership are getting the, the basics? Like, for example, in your book about historically Black colleges and universities, do you see that the leadership in the, of these institutions are really understanding what it takes now to keep them on the books, so to speak? That's a good question. I'd say, I'd say we're somewhere in the middle. We're making progress, mm. but there's a long ways to go. And I think, you know, what's so important and, and what's so tragic about this whole piece is that some of our leaders really have a grasp of it and, 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 and they make those efforts to actually put everything in place. But just as many leaders on the other side still aren't looking at the accrediting body and accrediting piece like they should and what you find quite often throughout the uh, many of our small institutions you know there's a rush to uh, get prepared when it's time to be reaffirmed mm-hmm. uh, there's no long-term strategy and I think that's one of the things that's creating some of the problems and the other piece of it is is that when you look at these accreditation handbooks and all of those things you know it gives you a list of things that you must do you can't look at those things and put them in place at the last minute and, and I think that what we're seeing now is that there is this move to actually uh, outsource this on many campuses. And I don't think that's going to get you what you need to get. And I think that's why, you know, you still see some of our institutions having problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and another thing I think that's a problem is board governance in some of our institutions. Uh, when you have a board chair or board leadership, who's actually usurping the power of the president, that creates problems. There, there was an institution that uh, I was working with, it's been about two years ago, and I was most amazed that when the chair of the board came in this institution, 
we had people running in, bringing in grapes. And, I, you know, I thought we had the emperor coming in. <laughs> and, and it was really amazing in that this person was making personnel decisions for the institution and making financial decisions for the institution. And the president had very little control over what directional of the institution. And uh, I'm not going to name the school, but right now it is having difficulties with the association. And uh, it's no wonder because the person who was he- you know, hired to head the university doesn't have the authority to make the moves that they need to make to actually keep the institution accredited. And that's created widespread turnover. And I think that's what we see in some of our institutions. And so what I'd love to do, and I used to do something like this when I was at another institution, we had a workshop in which we offered free for small schools and board leadership. Mm. And I think that's something we've got to get a handle on on many of our institutions, how better to lead our institutions and to hire the right people and let them lead the institution. Yeah. I, I, even though I'm no longer at an HBCU, I've worked at Johnson C. Smith and Morehouse. And even though I'm no longer at an HBCU, I still try to find to share my my knowledge and, and what little bit I can do to help. So I, I did recently participated in the uh, Clark Atlanta ELI, I think they're calling it. And just to see so many people interested in doing it, I, I, I'm just amazed because the future does look bright for, for the young people who really wanna take up this work. I call it ministry. Um, that's, that's what it is in terms of what we have to do. But as your career moved through, uh, you've, you've been a transformational leader in many ways on the campuses that you've been. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your philosophy around leadership and how you, you try to fashion your leadership where you are? Well, I think anytime you're leading any organization, you have to be a servant leader. A servant leader, one that you're leading to actually improve the life and the caliber of the students that are on that particular campus and the faculty and the staff and everyone on that institution. You want to make sure that what you're doing is are the things that are going to improve conditions for all. Now, the way that you do that is that you've got to actually get down and, and not be a person who's one of these lofty leaders. I love to actually go out and travel our campus and walk around and meet with everyone on that campus, spend that time to learn what they are thinking about our institution. And as we begin to put that information into one pocket, then we begin to see exactly how people see and view our institution. And as we see how people view our institutions, it allows me to go back into uh, my toolkit to pull out things I think that will best fit us as an institution. For example, you know, where I'm working now, very small institution, very prestigious, very historic institution. We've had so long, so many financial challenges as an institution. We're rich in art. We can't sell the art because it would create so many problems. But no real reserves in cash. But we've turned out all these amazing leaders. And you know what's important for many people to know about our institution and our staff and faculty to know is that when Fisk was founded, we were the least of the institutions in Nashville. There were four other HBCUs that were founded there, and two of them were far more prominent. And, and to get that information out and then to go back and say that Fisk was able to actually overcome the challenges, even in these times of weakness and to move forward. So taking that, all of that information, getting it to people and having these conversations and then looking at our campus, we had rundown buildings, we had no restaurants for our students and finding the ways to find those resources, meaning that sharing the story that I'm just telling you now with others in town. Uh, sharing information about our institution, which in the past, many people, if they would have heard it, probably would have run away from us. But sharing that story, all of the story, we begin to get people interested in the institution because they could see there was a real benefit. Uh, with that being the case, we begin to get a few more dollars. We got our first on-campus restaurant, first new building in 50 years, wow. new buildings going up on our campus, two new buildings, which will be going up in the fall. Uh, and then being a, a, what I want to say, an entrepreneur to do some things that most people couldn't do. For example, we had an athletic field. It was terrible by all accounts. And we wanted to put a stadium uh, up there and we didn't have any money. So we went on eBay. We bought a football stadium on eBay that seats 5,000 people. This is still stadium for $30,000. Wow. 
right? And then we got a person who owns the soccer team to invest in to actually build a field for us. And so, you know, being innovative, being an entrepreneur, and also listening and telling our story about who we are, how we fit into the whole pantheon of higher education in this city. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of leader that you have to be if you're going to move anything forward. Because, you know, if you had an elephant and you wanted to move forward, he's not going to move forward if you're sticking with a pen. So, <laughs> I like so that. <laughs> yeah. You got to drag him one step at a time, a little bit at a time. And that's what we've been able to do. Yeah. But listening to people and telling a real story, because my institution, you know, Fisk, we, we graduated W.B. Du Bois, John Hope Franklin, David Levering Lewis, John Lewis, and Nikki Giovanni and others. There are many people are saying we're at the epitome. We're at the apex. Mm-hmm. And having people to know that Fisk was not always at the apex and that, you know, we did this over time and now we're making this move again. And that's helping people to frame what we can do and see. Yeah. And I, I think that's the best way of telling the story. It, you know, it's a fascinating story as Fisk, because I mentioned when I was at UNCF and we toured the campus, one of the fall visit was to Fisk. And, you know, the Fisk Jubilee singers and everything everyone knows about, but it's the art that's there, the sticklets and all of these things that are in, it, it's, it's amazing. But the, what you just shared I didn't realize that in context, because, you know, you visit the campus, you go to certain buildings and you leave and so on. Mm-hmm. But this is a truly a gem in higher education in general. And you just mentioned some of your illustrious graduates. But I want to ask you something more personal. Can you tell us what is your biggest win and what is your biggest disappointment throughout your illustrious career? Well, you know, my biggest win, I think, you know, is I just got that two days ago when I got those new buildings up at Fisk University. And I, I'm going to say that I'm, I'm just so happy that, you know, there have been seven presidents who've been trying to get a new classroom building. Seven presidents. And I was the one to get these classroom, this classroom building. Uh, we're number six in the nation for research for small colleges. Wow. The problem that we've had is that we've got a research uh, labs that were built in 1935. Wow, wow. State of the art in 1935. Almost 100 years later, we finally get a new science building that's going to go up. And if we can do be number six with a 1935 lab, can you imagine where we're going to be when we get this new building? So I wow. think that is one of the, the Congratulations. wins. Yes. So thank you on that. Now, if you talk about losses, you know, I think one of the, the, the biggest losses was uh, Barbara Scotia, you know, that's an institution that lost its accreditation and trying to convince people to do uh, some of the things that needed to be done. I wasn't able to convince those folks, but the thing of it is we haven't given up on the institution. I plan to speak there in a couple of weeks, but being involved and trying to help save that institution because it meant so much for my family. It was the pathway for my family to get higher education and to get education in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, being involved in the early period when they were struggling, getting them through some of the struggles and then going back, seeing the institution lose its accreditation in 2004, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a piece that's going to always sit with me. And I think the, the thing that uh, we're now trying to figure out how to get the institution to move forward, and that's somewhere we just have not... Uh, come up with the proper determination, but also trying to convince others to invest in a series of buildings because people, as you know, don't invest in buildings, they invest in people. people. Mm-hmm. And uh, trying to get the alums and others at the institution involved to actually help move this whole process forward. So, you know, I would say that would be my biggest loss and biggest loss. my biggest win would be those new buildings. Well, it, it, we see what's happening with Morris Brown. So no, no hope is lost. And you see what Dr. Kevin James is doing there and uh, getting reaccredited and getting back into the swing of things. So my prayers are with them because I started at UNCF uh, right around 2000. No, in the early 90s when Bill Gray was there. And I keep forgetting the name of the president there, a lady that I had a tremendous amount of respect for. She was like a Dr. Mabel McLean. Dr. Mabel McLean, and and she came to the meetings and she had the young president that was there, can't remember his name. She was sitting there talking at one of the meetings and she had this presence about her. I'm like, who is this? 
she looked almost like Mary Bethune. Uh, Bethune. That, yeah, that was her. I, I'm sitting and looking at this lady and I'm sitting around the president's table. Amazing stuff. And that's why my heart is really with our HBCUs in terms of trying to help in any way that I can. But I want to switch a little bit for you before our time runs out. Okay. Are you going to continue to write? Yeah, I've got a piece now that I've been writing, Gerald, for 15 years, and I'm getting back to it. Uh, was I won't say for 10 years, but uh, before they opened the lynching museum, the National Lynching Museum in Alabama, I was commissioned by the University of Alabama to write the history of Blacks in Alabama. Oh, wow. wow. And it's a very big project. It was an anthology. So I wrote the first five chapters and the last chapter. It was, it was supposed to end the age of Obama. Well, okay. we know we've got two presidents since Obama, but now what I have done is that I've started writing a chapter of this every two months. So oh, hopefully yeah. you'll be seeing that come out pretty quick, it, uh, pretty soon. It's a, about a 400 page manuscript. And so I'm trying to see if we can go through it now and begin to kind of call it back, but it will look at a history of African-Americans and how that uh, uh, history shaped blacks all around the, the country in, from Alabama. So. That's a big project. And uh, when I was in Alabama, I used to supervise a, a managed the black, uh, the state black uh, history museum. And so that was a piece that came out of that uh, when I supervised that uh, black uh, history museum. And I just got tied up in the academics and different jobs and didn't get a chance to finish it. But I'm back on that now. Yeah. And I'm also looking at some new things. This uh New Life for Historically Black Colleges. I'm looking at some updates on it. Uh, some things have kind of changed. Actually, uh, I want to actually go back and encourage and, and incorporate those things into the book. So, Mr. President, how, how, how you you must love writing as a hobby because it, that relaxes you. Because oh, yeah. your job is, I, I cannot being a college president is not an easy job. So, I would imagine you you write to wind down. Well, you know what I used to do, and I'm not doing it as much now. I used to write one page per night. That was a goal. One page a night. Uh, now what I try to do is write four to five pages a month. Okay. <laughs> All right. And, that that, that uh, seems you know, more manageable. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, and the thing of it is, it, there's sometimes I have a flow and I get 10 pages. Mm. But uh, we're getting there, and I just feel good about this whole piece. The University of Alabama Press has been very patient with me. They still are engage in this process. So, you know, hopefully one day you'll see this thing come out. There'll be two new books that'll be coming out for me. Yeah. So um, quick question. And we're, we're, we have about 15 minutes left. And I want to make sure I get this in. You're a college president, inspirational leader, have this stellar background but you are serving a demographic of our nation that oftentimes one can say feels a little bit left behind and you know, coming out of COVID and, and all of these things, don't have the resources that some institutions do, don't have the facilities and so on that will attract and, and so on, but you still have, you're turning out scholars. If I was to ask you to be a, from a pastoral perspective, if you will, if you had your druthers, what words of inspiration and hope could you provide for the listeners of this podcast um, about what's, what's in the future and how should they look to their future? You know, none of us knows, you know, quite what the future is going to hold, but we have to also know that we are children of God. I always put my religion and faith in this whole piece in that we have to prepare for the future. We have to prepare regardless. And in order to prepare for the future and, and to be ready, we've got to have the educational knowledge. We've got to have the a world knowledge. We've got to have the knowledge of our neighbors so that we can move forward and be prepared for whatever happens. And I tell young people as we go forward uh, on our institution, as we recruit young people to come to school, that if you come to this institution and you get an education at Fisk University, it's not going to just be an education that you get from the books. You're going to get an education from the people who work with you. You're going to get an education from the city of Nashville. You're going to get an education from all the interaction of your classmates so that you're going to be ready and prepared for the world in which you live. And so when I talk to young people, I tell them 
to seize all the opportunities that are around. Don't let any opportunity go to waste. If you work at Walmart part-time, seize the opportunity and learn from everyone that works in that store because there may be that one little piece of information that you gather from someone that you wouldn't think would have that information that's going to take you further. Here's, here's a good story, and I'll tell you, and, this is, and I've carried this with me all my life. My mom told me when I took my first job, and it was working at an A&P grocery store. Most people may not know what an A&P grocery store is, but I started at 15, and I was a bag boy. And uh, it was a way to make a little money as a kid. But she told me, she said, when you get a job, make yourself a job. Mm. When you get a job, make yourself a job. Learn everything that you can learn. Be willing to do everything that no one else is willing to do. And you'll always have a job. And I worked at this job all the way through college, high school, because I would do all the stuff that other people didn't want to do. I took that same philosophy when I got into higher education. And uh, when I worked in the bank, I did all the things that other people didn't want to do. And I learned all that I could learn. And I was able to move up the ladder and survive. And I think that's how you move into a, a corporate culture. That's how you move into the culture of higher education. You can't get impatient, but you have to learn. It's always a learning process, grasping all the opportunities and doing the things that other people won't do. Because with that, you're going to gain the knowledge that other people don't have. You know, I'm so glad to hear that because it dovetails nicely into a question I wanted to ask you before we got off. Um, before we end this interview or this podcast today, you you are, a, 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 I would say, an accomplished higher education administrator, scholar, author, all of these things. But as you look across the higher education landscape today and you see where we are, public, private, HBCU, PWI, HSI, if you were, say, the... the, the the Secretary of Education for this these great United States of America, what would you want to see happen in this space? Because this space is going to be necessary to keep this transformation of our world going. What would, what would you want to see? Well, let me tell you what I'd like to see. And, and this is important. Our country is browning, the browning of America. And many of our students who are minorities or other, other ethnicities, they don't go to mainstream institutions. And if we're going to be a world leader, we have to make sure that the educations that people get are equal educations, are educations that are going to actually uh, lead to somewhere. So we don't want to have a yellow brick road with a wall in front of it. We want a yellow brick road that leads to a future. So I'd love to see, you know, funding that's equal all across the board. There's so many institutions that don't have the funding that they need. Uh, years ago, I went to an institution in Houston. And it was a public institution, it was HSI. And I was surprised at the lack of funding and absence of resources at this institution that served roughly 20,000 students. Wow. And I think what we have to look at is that we begin to uh, create the society of tomorrow of how is how do we get the right type of funding? How do we get the right types of teachers? How do we get those students who may not have had the kind of education that they needed coming up up to par when they get into college. I think the, the biggest uh, disappointment that I've seen throughout my career was the uh, whole rush to get rid of what we call remedial education. And I'm gonna give you a little story. I came from a small town with a very poor school system. I did not learn how to do math or any of that in the school system. I learned to do math by running a cash register at the a and grocery store. Really? And I learned it from the manager there who, you know, showed me how to count the pennies up and count from the nickels. Well, there were so many students that were my classmates who came out of those the same situations who went to college and they didn't make it because they didn't have the requisite skill sets. And I, I really believe we need to fund more. Uh, more funding needs to go into helping students to get college ready. Mm. And, and I think that can be done in the high schools. That can be done somewhere out there, but we have to find that funding because there are so many students that I think that are just like Van Newkirk who could be successful if they would have had a Merle McCall, who was my manager at a <laughs> helping them uh -huh. along the way. 
So I just think that's that's what's important if you were in education at, uh, over the Department of Ed, and that's what the department needs to be looking at instead of all the charter schools and what I want to call the uh, business, business, uh, uh, the, the division of higher education, all these little Byzantine type processes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last question that I have for you, um, Dr. Newkirk, is um, what's what's next for you? And what, what have we not discussed here that you would like to share with our listeners and our young people and the grandparents and the young adults that are in their their, their early years of their career and they feel a little bit stuck. What, what, is there anything that you'd like to share? What's on your heart to close us out? Well, you know, just like I said earlier, you know, no matter what job you're doing and no matter what your station that you have in life right now, is that that's, everything's always, I say, in a temporary mode. Learn all you can and get yourself prepared for the next opportunity because the next opportunity may be right there in front of you if you have the right knowledge. And I always tell people, don't get frustrated. Get even by moving forward and learning more. Mm. And that's what I would leave them with those words, because learning more is the key to actually changing any situation. Well, sir, you've shared some words of wisdom here. I've learned quite a bit about you today. I didn't know (laughs) some of these things, but just add to the amazing career that you've had and the lives that you've touched. Um, From the time that I've met you, I read your book. And Dr. Yancey speaks so highly of you. And Dr. Yancey, and I tell people all the time, don't say nothing bad about Dr. Yancey because we fight. <laughs> <laughs> so if Dr. Yancey speaks fondly of someone, that person is good people in my mind. So, sir, it's been a pleasure to um, uh, spend this time with you. And I, I will say to you, if there's anything I can do to help in any way, shape or form, uh, please, please call on me. I, I, I do try to give back any way that I can, but you know, the good ones like yourself and others and the work that you're doing, I, I, I can tell you, I stay from a distance and I'm cheering on the work that you're doing. Congratulations on the buildings. I did not know it was that long, but that is a major milestone, especially for a private institution in these days and times, finding resources is not easy. So it's really your leadership that really is bringing that to the fore and you should be congratulated for that. So thank you so much for joining us today, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yeah. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've just spent close to an hour with Dr. Van Newkirk, uh, the president of the illustrious Fisk University, one of the nation's most cherished jewels, I would say. And that's kind of biased because as many of you know, I'm a Howard grad, but I also worked at the UNCF and I know the work that these institutions are doing. They are basically taking the diamonds in the rough, polishing them up and launching them into the world. And Dr. Newkirk is leading one of those institutions that does that on a daily basis. So I hope something was said here today, and I hope that something from Dr. Newkirk will inspire you to think about your station in life and where you can go to next. The sky is the limit. But as he said, if you have a job, find a job within that job and you'll be all right. So until next week, Take care, have a great week, and remember, this is It's Easy Sun, your life lessons on your journey to your purpose. Take care, and have a great week.